Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Welcome back, I should say, to myself. I, I had to take a little bit of a break from the podcasting scene. A lot was going on. We we went pretty hard at the end of the 2020 draft cycle. And I wanted to take a little bit of time away, um, kind of focus on some things more towards the day job, take a little bit of time for myself, and then make the pilgrimage out to Las Vegas Summer League, which thankfully I was still able to do despite a few complications, and I was able to see some awesome basketball out there. Not that I wasn't watching all the games on TV, of course, be that NBA TV, ESPN, etc. But it's always a privilege to be able to get out and see live basketball and scout these players in person because there are some things that the eye picks up on when you're more up close and personal some things jump out at you, whether it's a player's athletic talent, such as his speed or his verticality, any verbal communication. You're much able, you're able to easily pick that up when you're listening in person versus just trying to, you know, catch tidbits here and there on TV. Some of those things are really interesting to see in person. And it's why this upcoming scouting cycle, now that I kind of have a year under my belt, have the support on this platform by the way thank you everyone who listens consistently for giving us the support that you have especially over the last year i feel that i will be able to get back out on the road now especially with a lot of the covid stuff subsiding now i'm really going to be able to deliver some even better scouting content to all of you as i'm able to see more of these games in person but let's talk about summer league that's really why i'm doing this podcast today i want to do some quick reactions to some of the stuff that i saw both on tape as well as in person and that's really what i want to focus on today so let's start at the top obviously the headliners were kate cunningham jalen green evan mobley top three overall picks in the draft scotty barnes is the fourth pick and then jalen suggs although i didn't think that jalen suggs's performance was as standout quote unquote as some of the other things that i saw from from the other top guys and we'll get into that in a second but we'll start with with cade cunningham and jalen green obviously their game against each other was the most hyped event of summer league it was the the prime time espn game Heavily featured, heavily talked about, even afterwards, you see a lot of the big shows, the jump, etc. Want to talk about the matchup between those guys, who does everyone think is going to be better in the long term, etc. Jalen Green clearly won that matchup. And to me, in my personal opinion, it wasn't close. It more comes back to some of the struggles that Cade had throughout his playing time in Summer League. I know that from a skill perspective, obviously, when, when you bring things in from a mental perspective as well, Cade was one of the most complete prospects in this entire draft class, and rightfully so. No overreactions here to Summer League. He's still going to be a good to great player in the NBA, but he needs to develop a little more of the craft that you see from some more polished players in the league, guys who have a few years under their belt, even though they aren't quite as elite of athletes, not to say that I want to make an apt comparison here to Luka Doncic because Luka is such a special, special basketball player. But you see some of the craft that he plays with, right? His knowing how to navigate certain areas inside the arc, how to get how to get his defender on his hip, 
how to position himself, use his body to kind of get where he needs to go. You didn't see a lot of that craft from Cade Cunningham in Summer League, and I get it. It's Summer League. He had, he had about three games under his belt. But the lack of burst, the lack of a really strong first step, him not being able to blow by anyone, no matter really who was picking him up in half-court defense, those were some concerns. The majority of his scoring, I mean, a, a lot was made out of his last game where he had 24 points on 7 of 10 three-point shooting, and that's great. He looked good off the catch. He looked good spotting up. The stroke is clean. We knew that coming in. The biggest question before he was drafted or going into that year, really one of two, was, was would the jump shooting translate? What would it look like? And would he be able to make some big-time shots? And he answered both of those questions while playing at Oklahoma State. But then, obviously, you get to the NBA. It's another level of basketball. You want to see if some of that shot-making can still reign supreme. The jump shot's going to be okay. It's going to translate. He still shot 40% from three during his, his short stint in summer league. So I'm not concerned about the shooting at all, and that's great because especially if he's going to be playing more two next to Killian Hayes, if – if what we saw in Summer League is going to play out at least to start the regular season where the ball is primarily in Killian Hayes' hands to operate and pick and roll, make plays, set everybody up, and Kate can kind of be that secondary initiator, someone who you try and go to when things break down or, or maybe he's relocated to one of the corners, he's spotting up for an open shot. If that's the role that he is going to play more or less, and they're not going to put the ball in his hands almost exclusively to run that offense, then it was really encouraging to see a lot of the same signs that, that the shot making to him to translate. But when we're talking about some of the isolation basketball, when he's alone, when he has somebody on an island one-on-one, -on -one, he wasn't facing that special caliber of defender in summer league nor was he going to it, it, it's summer league he's not going up against some of the top defenders in the nba but like i said virtually anyone that was guarding him was able to keep Kane in front of them and that's going to be a problem you want to see him get a few more blow buys you want to see him use his body and his size to his advantage because it's clear that he he is really skinny he's going to have to put on a, a little more bulk he's going to have to get stronger because if this is how he's going to try and operate in the NBA and be more of a high-usage type offensive player, it's not going to work out well for him right off the bat. So I really want to see how he approaches the next few months as he continues to train for the start of the NBA regular season. What kind of offensive sets Detroit involves him in? Do they put the ball in his hands a little more? Do they split responsibilities or leave a lot of the playmaking in, in Killian's hands as we start the season? I think, and, and I probably agree with a lot of other people, that the ball should be in Cade's hands a little more to take advantage of some of his passing, his his play, his, his, his usage and his knowing of different angles and how to deliver the ball to his teammates and when. I think that a lot of those strengths need to be taken advantage of a little more despite not having the, the, the blow-by consistency that I wanted to see more of in Summer League because Killian Hayes, for, for all that he might be better in getting a step on his defender I don't think he's a better ball handler right now than, than Cade Cunningham. I didn't like a lot of the shot selection I saw from him in summer league. He went to that step back three in, in, from what I saw a ton, and he wasn't making those types of shots 
with regularity. I didn't think the pull-up jumper was where it needs to be yet coming into his second year. And he he missed a decent chunk of time last year. It's not like he had a full rookie year under his belt. So I'm not expecting um, greatness or perfection from, from Killian Hayes, really, really ever, but certainly by any means, especially going into his second year. But that dynamic, it's going to be really interesting to watch. I still like it. I still think those two can coexist with one another. But I wasn't blown away with a lot of what Cade did during summer league. Again, I like that the jump shoot, the jump shooting translated when he did have opportunities to make plays for others. He he timed his pocket pass as well. He hit guys in the hands. Whether they made some of the shots, obviously Cade didn't rack up as many assists in my opinion, as I feel he could have had. He only averaged 2.3 assists per game, the four turnovers per game. But he played He played with great effort. He was at least trying on the court at all times, trying to be a vocal leader, really communicating, putting in a tremendous amount of effort on the defensive end. He actually shined, in my opinion. He Listen, he averaged almost 19 points per game, but I think he shined more on the defensive end. And that was one of the things that I wanted to watch coming into the scouting cycle how he was going to operate on the defensive end, if he could be a versatile body who could potentially guard either wing spot, maybe stick on some ones, maybe in time as he adds more to his body. He is 6'8". Can he guard up a position, maybe guard some fours? He showed the willingness to at least handle a variety of defensive matchups, and that I was also really encouraged to see. The top player on your team, your leader, how is he going to operate on the defensive end? Is he going to take plays off, or is he going to bring that intensity game to game, possession to possession. And Cade did that. And I really hope I see more of that from him in the regular season and moving forward for the Detroit Pistons because they have some interesting defensive talents in place. I expect Sadiq Bay to be a lot better on the defensive end next year. Obviously, Isaiah Isaiah Stewart is, is the rim protector that you would want to have down low for them. He also showed signs of versatility being as athletic as he is, more of that quote-unquote small ball five, but obviously having enough bulk to bang down low with some of the more traditional big men. Jeremy Grant's a versatile defender. I don't think Killian Hayes is necessarily inept to guarding on that end as well. I think that he's going to improve with another year under his belt. So I like what Detroit is building on both ends of the floor. I just wasn't blown away by Cade. I guess the one guy will we'll technically jump around in this podcast a little bit, but we'll stay with the Pistons. The one guy that I was impressed with besides Sadiq Bay was Luca Garza. He was the one guy, I don't think anybody else played harder than Luca did in Summer League. And it was really nice to see I'm glad that he was giving that level of effort, having that level of impact on his team. His teammates love him. You can tell that when he gets in the game, the fans love him. His teammates play with a bunch of joy. His coaching staff seemed like they liked working with him as well. And he was stretching the floor. He was hitting shots from the outside. He was running the floor as hard as he could in transition. He was getting back on defense, having an impact around the basket, blocking shots. I liked a lot of the stuff that I saw from him. Is he this elite defender in space? Are teams going to eat him up in some pick and roll coverages? Obviously, a lot of the things that we can say about some of these more traditional big men nowadays, they're going to apply to Luca Garza. There's a reason why he ultimately wasn't a first-round pick. But as someone who I think can stick with an NBA team, especially given what he does on the offensive end and on the glass, I was impressed with with the effort level, the seriousness that he played with in summer league. And I, I think he's going to stick around. 
I, I really think he's going to stick around. He has a deal now in Detroit. He's going to be playing with the Pistons this upcoming year. I think he's going to stick around in the league. Some people didn't think he deserved to be drafted and thought that he wouldn't work in the NBA whatsoever. There are a lot worse options you can have playing 18 to 22 minutes a night for, for your club if you need a backup big man. So I thought the Pistons overall, Killian, Cade, Sadiq, and Luka, when you combine the impact of all four of them, I, I did like a lot of the things that I saw from the Pistons summer league team. Another collection of talent, obviously, is Houston. We, we alluded to Jalen Green having the more dominant impact in summer league, in my opinion, if you factor out some of these other second year players, Tyrese Maxey should have been at summer league. He was magnificent, but somebody like a Peyton Pritchard or a Desmond Bain. I mean, we're talking about college seniors who are going into their second year in the NBA played a full rookie regular season, had consistent playing time, albeit not the most major of roles, but they at least had consistent playing time. I don't know if they should have been there playing as many minutes and in as many games as they ultimately did. Desmond Bain was pulled, I guess, relatively early, but I mean, Peyton Pritchard even played in the championship game, which is something else that, that we'll also get to because he had to go up against one of the tougher matchups, somebody else who impressed me in summer league and Davion Mitchell. But when you take out some of those quote-unquote older guys, right, the guys with more experience, some of the second-year players, Jalen Green, to me, obviously stood out the most. He was magnificent, 20 points per game on 51.4% shooting, 52.6% from the three-point line, 92.9% from the free-throw line, averaged 4.3 rebounds, two assists. What didn't he do on the basketball court? He displayed shot-making from every single level. He was way more efficient from three-point range than I thought he would be, especially given that a lot of those shots were made. They were contested looks. They were pull-ups, step-backs. He really didn't shoot that many set three-point shots. He created higher difficulty shots for himself and excelled in making those looks. His comfort level on the court, he was not phased by anything whatsoever. Obviously, we've heard all of the interviews. He has a massive chip on his shoulders. He wants to prove everybody wrong. And he really started that campaign off pretty well in Las Vegas. I have no complaints with what I saw from Jalen Green, his toughness, his tenacity on the defensive end, his willingness to go out there and, and guard some of the other tougher talents that, that he could go up against in, in summer league, him wanting to do that, his willingness. I love seeing that. I always love seeing that from some of the top guys on specific teams. And the other bright spot for him was some of his playmaking. A lot of people came into this to, to this point with questions about how good of a passer is he? If you put him in some design sets like pick and roll, how does he operate? Can he can he make the pocket pass? Can he do some of the, the cross-court type stuff? Can he even make just some of the easy reads? And when I was talking with other people leading up to the draft, guys like um, Brett and Jacob on, on the overstated NBA show, I was, I was going through how maybe Jalen Green doesn't develop into this awesome passer, but He's going to be a guy, given his work ethic and his knowledge and his understanding of the game, he's going to make, at least be able to make the easy reads, right? And I think he definitely started to demonstrate some of that in Las Vegas. And I expect the Houston Rockets to have a lot more trust now and want to put the ball in his hands more this upcoming year. I think that 
it, listen, it's going to go likely as I thought it would that that Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green are going to form one hell of a tandem in the backcourt for Houston. They have one of the most exciting young cores that I cannot wait to watch this upcoming year. And we can't talk about the Houston Rockets without touching on some of their other guys that they drafted. Everyone ended up getting to play in summer league, which is awesome. Even Usman Garuba was able to come over after completing his buyout with Real Madrid. He got some playing time towards the back end of the summer league. But listen, Alper and Shangun, I won't spend a ton of time on him. And, and that's only because, not, not that I don't have a bunch of different points that I can make about his game, but he didn't stand out to me in terms of he came out and if you watch him, you could be easily swayed if you weren't already a fan of his. I think that if you liked Alper and Shengun as much as I did or close to as much as I did coming into the 2020 draft, I think you definitely walked away from watching some of his summer league film in, in much brighter spirits. But if you didn't like him, if you still had some of the same concerns about him defensively, potentially being played off the floor, if you didn't buy that the jump shot was going to translate as immediately as some other people might have thought, some of those concerns are still there. He, he did look a step slow. He's not this quick guy. That's as evident in person as it likely was on film for a lot of people coming in. But his game is so unique his understanding of positioning of where to be on the court at all times. Again, th this is one of the things that I talked about when it comes to playing defense, sometimes you're not going to be quicker than the other guy, but if you can see the play happening one to two steps ahead and you can get to a spot before somebody else does and cut them off, that's how you can have an impact and, and make an impact defensively. And Shen Goon was, was doing that all over the place in summer league, the amount of blocks that, that Shangun uh, racked up in some of these games. I mean, he averaged, averaged in four, in about four games played, he averaged three blocks per game in summer league. Somebody who wasn't looked at as being this awesome rim protector. And again, it's summer league. Some of these statistics are going to be outliers compared to what they're going to do in a rookie year or for some of them, even a sophomore year. I get it. I understand it. But his effort level, scoring the basketball, he didn't even shoot the ball that well, to be honest. As a big man, as somebody who is viewed at, as being an option around the basket, not necessarily away from the basket just yet, he only shot 43% from the field. On, on limited attempts per game, he did end up shooting about 38% from three and only 61% or just under that from the free throw line. We expect the free throw percentage to certainly go up as we get in, into the regular season. He gets more playing time. The three-point percentage, I don't think it's going to be horrific in his rookie year, but I don't think he's going to be above league average. I think if anything... If he can get to like a 30 to 31% mark on the three ball and within like his first two years in the league, I would consider that a success. That's something you can build off, obviously get the free throw percentage up. If he's going to be racking up as many free throw attempts per game as he did in summer league, he went to the line seven times per game. That's magnificent because when he wasn't finishing some of the, some of those shots around the rim, he was even getting an offensive rebound. And, and, and if he wasn't making the follow-up, he was at least 
drawing contact, using some of that craft down low to draw the foul and get to the line where he could at least give himself another chance to, to pick up some points. Um, but yeah, on the glass, like I talked about, almost four offensive rebounds per game and close to 11 rebounds per game total. So you're talking about a guy who averaged a double-double, did not look lost on defense, and made a name for himself in summer league. I fully expect him to have some kind of role with the Houston Rockets this upcoming year. I don't know how much of a role he's going to have. I've talked about previously, I think that somebody like an Usman Garuba, for example, would be a much more natural fit next to Christian Wood, for example, if Wood's going to be the primary starting big man for, for Houston. But they have other guys there. Jay Sean Tate is going to be back in the fold as a starting forward. One of those two forward spots, Kenny Martin Jr. was another guy that, that looked pretty good in summer league. You would expect him to compete for one of those other forward spots as well. So they have plenty of options. But Shen Goon will certainly get some kind of opportunity because he, he did play well in my opinion, in Vegas. And he showed a little more of, of what I thought some of this could start to look like. Maybe, if not immediately in his rookie year, maybe in his second year. I, I think, in my opinion, he's a little bit ahead of schedule than where even I thought he would be coming in. And that's that's fantastic. Josh Christopher, the other the other guy that that really played a number of games for them, we knew that he was a ball-dominant scorer coming in. Clearly, he wanted to be that guy in Vegas. He wasn't the most efficient scorer. I think he 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 shot under 35% from the field. Some of these statistics that I'm throwing out there, they aren't updated for some of like the final games on Tuesday, for example. They were stats that I pulled leading into like Sunday, Monday. But yeah, Josh Christopher was not the most efficient scorer from the field, did not shoot the three ball well, did get to the line. Um, he at one point he was averaging five free throw attempts per game and he was shooting 80% on those looks. He did average four assists per game, but yeah, some of the shot selection, some of the turnovers, these were all growing pains that we expect Josh Christopher to go through. There's a reason why he was a later first round pick. I don't expect him to have a major role for Houston in his rookie year, probably going to spend a lot of time in the G league, but his defensive impact his communication. I think I think he was the loudest person at, at, at Vegas Summer League. And in, in, in my mind, that that's for damn sure. He was loud. He was communicating with his teammates at all times, especially on the defensive end. He was energized. He was engaged. He wanted to make an effort. Jalen Green was talking about how him and Josh already have really strong chemistry with one another. And, and I expect that to continue with, with all of the other backcourt guys that Houston has to offer with Josh. I think that Josh is going to fit in and at some point, he's really going to be a strong contributor for that team off the bench. I don't know if he can start. I would love for him to be able to start. I think defensively, he certainly can. But unless that jump shot improves from, from a catch and shoot, from a spot up standpoint, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be the guy you would want to throw in there, which would already kind of be a smaller lineup when you're talking about at least John Wall's on the team for now, Kevin Porter Jr., Jalen Green. If you're throwing another guard in there with two of those three guys, that that's a small lineup. And unless you're really getting the shooting out of it to maximize what you can do offensively, I don't know if that's the way that Houston wants to go. So like I said, a lot of time in the G League this year, but I did like some of the things I saw from Josh Christopher. And then Usman Garuba didn't play a lot at least not a lot that I saw. 
wasn't really an impact on the offensive end, but defensively, just like you were seeing in the Olympics, he wanted to guard anybody and everybody. He even had some impact making blocks around the basket. I think he actually had like a game-saving block on the last day. Obviously wanted to show his effort rebounding the basketball. He was a good player. He was a good player and, and showed a lot that I think we can expect um, from, from him in, in like a rookie year and a sophomore year. And An energy guy, someone who, like I said, heading into the draft process, if he gives you 10 points, 10 rebounds, um, some mix of those stats like in like a per 36 line, and then you get all the defensive impact he brings with being someone who could potentially guard one through five in time, being active on the ball, off the ball, offering weak side coverage, stealing the basketball when he can. That is a ton of value to get in one player, even though he isn't putting up these massive counting numbers. So for all the guys that liked Garuba heading into the process, I saw nothing that would have dissuaded me from those opinions in summer league. Overall, the Houston Rockets, I gave them an A grade in terms of their draft. I stand by that. I loved everything that I saw from their guys. And those were the majority of thoughts I could sum up for the, the top. Well, I, I wouldn't say the top teams, but the teams that had the top two picks, obviously they made other selections besides those top two guys. That really sums up both of those squads pretty well. Then we move into the number three overall pick, Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley did not have a good summer league. He, he certainly showed flashes. Some of his blocks were, were pretty impressive. The passing was on display. When he had the, the size and length advantage in the front court, he had a few nice dunks where he ripped the rim down. You, you, you like to see some, some of the intensity behind those dunks. But from a, a mass scoring perspective, in, in my opinion, he didn't do as much on the offensive end as he could have. He showed... He had a few nice jumpers made, but he did not shoot them with regularity. He only shot about 12.5% from three-point range when I pulled these numbers. was only shooting 50% from the line. Again, rebounded the ball fairly well and was tossing out some nice assists. The passing, we thought, would be something that can at least partially translate from day one, the rebounding. Listen, he was bigger than pretty much everyone else he was going up against throughout his course of playing at Summer League. So if he would have had less than the 7.7 rebounds per game he had when I pulled these numbers, I would have been a lot more disappointed in Mobley. So it was nice to see him make an impact in the game and not be a complete zero just because I didn't like some of the things that I saw offensively. But again, the jump shot does need work. He's not going to immediately step in from day one and stretch the floor. He doesn't have a post game right now. He's still weak in that lower body. He gets pushed off of spots. Defensively, if he has to take on somebody like a Shangun, for example, somebody who Mobley definitely sunned him a few times just because of pure length, but there were also plenty of other times in that Rockets Cavs matchup where Shangun got the best of him by just being stronger than Mobley, pushing him off of his spots pretty easily. Again, I've been very patient with big men, I've learned to be patient with big men as well as point guards developing in the NBA, the one and the five are the two most difficult positions to adjust to in the pros because of the amount of communication 
the amount of physicality, the amount of smarts, IQ, toughness, all of those things that come along with playing those positions, let alone more of the basketball skills that you can get into, whether it's, whether it's handle and craft and pull up shot making ability for a point guard whether that's some of the more precise passing abilities that a point guard needs to have for, for big men, it's constant communication with everybody else on defense. It's being able to have some kind of semblance of a post game or being a major threat in the role game. But that also comes with adding to size and physicality, building on the body that you're coming in with. A lot of these big men, when they step foot in the NBA from day one, they, it, it's a man's game. They aren't ready to play that man's game yet, but that doesn't mean that you should just toss these big men in the trash and say they weren't worth the pick that they were selected with. No, Evan Mobley, listen, he had an argument to go higher than number three. In my opinion, I think that he went to the best place for him because he can play next to more of a true big and Jared Allen and he can play the four and step in his perimeter oriented skill set is better served at least right now at the four spot. So I definitely like that. He was worth the number three pick, if not higher, just because I don't think he's going to have this amazing rookie season. I think in a lot of people's eyes, he may have a disappointing rookie season in some respects and I'm expecting that and that's okay it's why I'm not jumping off the James Wiseman bandwagon I wouldn't jump off the Evan Mobley bandwagon for the same reasons it takes these guys time to develop you have to be patient so I wasn't expecting to see dominant performances from Evan Mobley in summer league I just wanted to see glimpses I wanted to see what the passing would look like how much they put the ball in his hands where he was trying to make plays from we did a lot of stuff around the elbows and he even got the ball outside the three-point line. And if he wasn't jacking up a jump shot, he was able to take some guys off the dribble, make a few things happen, a few key passes in space. He even had some nice line drives to the basket when he was able to get downhill pressure on the rim. I like some of the flashes that I saw. It just wasn't dominance, and, and that's okay. Scotty Barnes, the number four pick in the draft for the Toronto Raptors. The numbers in terms of percentages wouldn't say dominance, but physically, holy shit, he looked like a house. He's definitely packed on some major weight, even since the pre-draft process. I did not expect to see a Scotty Barnes that was that big from a muscular standpoint out there on the court. 15 and a half points per game, average 6.8 rebounds per game, 3.3 assists per game. Again, these were these from when I pulled the numbers towards the end of the weekend, a steal per game and two blocks per game. That's a full line. That is a full stat line. Scotty Barnes did pretty much everything you could ask him to do on the court. He was excellent in transition. He showed some of the jump shooting ability. Even he stepped into a few three pointers, which looked good. He stepped into some shots from the elbows or around the free throw line. Those looked good. His finishing around the basket looked good. Even though some of the percentages weren't there, I, I have little to no complaints with what I saw from, from Scotty Barnes in Summer League. It was really interesting to see some of the lineups that Toronto threw out there. They had him playing alongside Precious Achua, Delano Banton, like all, all at the same time. These, these are big guys who can handle the ball to an extent. Like, like at, at one point, they threw out a lineup where I thought Scotty Barnes was, was kind of like the, the shooting guard of the small four. He wasn't playing like a four or a five. It was like Malachi Flynn who, by the way, also had a really excellent summer league. I'm expecting big things from him in a second year. It was almost like Scotty Barnes was a perimeter-oriented player, but not like the, the point guard that some might have even thought he could play. He was like this, this off-guard 
type player. It was a little weird to see when these guys initially trotted out on the court, but it worked when you saw how all of them being the smart basketball players that they are, well communicating, in tune, love playing with one another. It all kind of just gelled together. And I was really excited to see a lot of that come to fruition. And you could tell, you could tell why Toronto took Scotty Barnes. Apparently they thought that he had the most upside at that spot with the players remaining on the board. They clearly have belief that Fred Van Vliet can step up as a point guard, that Gary Trent can play well alongside him when they don't want to have um, Van Vliet exclusively playing the point. Malachi Flynn can step in in his second year and have an impact from that spot. It's clear that they have options in mind for that lead guard spot, and they can kind of put Scotty Barnes wherever they feel makes sense on the basketball court. He can be not locked into a position. He can literally be the positionless basketball player that he's been advertised as for so long. He can just exist on the court. He does a variety of things defensively. He wasn't scared to guard anybody as well. He was a versatile defender, impacting their game, blocking shots, dealing the ball when he was playing a passing lane, on the ball, off the ball. He's going to be a menace defensively in time. It's literally only a matter of time. I think he has a shot to be one of the most impressive rookies in the league. And anyone else who talks highly about him who thinks that he has a chance to be the best player out of this draft class you don't walk away vehemently disagreeing with that statement after summer league. You, you really don't. Jalen Suggs, the last guy in the quote-unquote consensus top five, at least for the majority of people, he didn't play a ton in, in summer league. He was pulled pretty early on because of an injury that he suffered. I wasn't blown away by, again, a lot of the counting statistics or the percentages that he put up, but you can just tell, man, this guy belongs on an NBA court. He's the best option at the guard spot that Orlando has right now, in my opinion, other than like a Gary Harris, for example. Obviously, we know like some of the veteran guys that they have, like Gary Harris. Obviously, he belongs in, in the NBA, and he's going to start from them. But I'm talking the young guys like, like Cole Anthony, who I was really high on last year, RJ Hampton. Markel Fultz, we don't know what he's going to be like coming back from another injury. And then you throw Suggs into that mix now. Like, out of those young guys, Suggs is, is clearly the best overall talent from an offensive and a defensive standpoint. The intensity he plays with, his athleticism is definitely going to translate in the NBA. For anyone who wanted to say that he wasn't an quote-unquote elite athlete coming in i think a lot of his athleticism definitely translated on the summer league floor it showed he's confident he's poised he's smart he plays with a good pace i like so much that i saw from jalen suggs the only the only nitpick that i really will throw in there comes on the offensive end it's something that other people have talked about whether it's on social media or even some of the guests like bryce hendricks for example when i had him on the podcast the handle's not great he did cough up the ball a, a few more times than, than I would have liked to see in, in, in summer league. He averaged, I believe, 2.3 turnovers per game when I was um, pulling these numbers. It looked, it, it looked and felt like more on film. Some of the pick and roll stuff when he tried to get into the lane off of a screen, he was coughing up the ball. If anybody came over to double team him, it wasn't a pretty sight. So that is something that needs to improve, but at the same time, I don't know how much pure point he's going to be playing for Orlando. They have other options at that point guard spot, whether it's Markel Fultz, if he's able to come back and slot in the lineup right away. If Cole Anthony 
proves to be better than he was in this summer league because this summer league he was atrocious <laughs> i'm not gonna lie i i expect a lot more from cole anthony heading into his second year they have other options to play that quote-unquote lead guard spot jalen so can be more of an off guard just let him go out there score the basketball how he sees fit make plays when he's able to focus his efforts on the defensive end just let him be him and let some of the other stuff come secondary in nature and Man, Suggs is, he, he, he's a winner. He plays with such enthusiasm. You can tell the guys love playing with him that were on his team out there in Vegas. It was a joy to watch what I could, and I cannot wait to watch more of him this upcoming NBA year. So those were like my major thoughts on the top five picks. Other guys that impressed me, I mean, we, we could talk about Peyton Pritchard and Tyrese Maxey being absolute buckets, flamethrowers for their respective teams, the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers. Pritchard being so much of a flamethrower that he helped lead his team to the, the Summer League Championship game. Now, the Celtics got blown out in that championship game, but Pritchard clearly looks like he's poised for a pretty decent uh, sophomore year, being able to score from all three levels. He was efficient. He shot from literally anywhere he wanted. He had, the, I believe, the most assists per game heading into the championship game and the best assist to turnover ratio in all of summer league. So obviously we knew that he was a pretty decent playmaker coming in. Clearly he's wanted to take strides in, in this previous offseason. He wanted to improve in that part of his game. He's put in the work and Boston's going to reap the rewards of having a legitimate backup point guard, someone who can actually run the offense when like a Dennis Schroeder or a Marcus Smart aren't on the floor. Peyton Pritchard's ready to step into that role and, and demand more responsibility for Boston as he heads into next year. Tyrese Maxey, nobody knows if he's actually going to be on the team at the start of next regular season. We don't know what's happening with Ben Simmons, if Max is going to be involved in like a Ben Simmons trade package, if they're able to pull off some massive heist for somebody like a Damian Lillard. We don't know exactly what's in Max's future, but if he's with the Sixers, he's going to be a bucket. He's going to be someone that they can have comfort in going to off the bench. He can lead a second unit. I wasn't in love with a lot of the stuff I saw from him from a point guard's perspective, but the glimpses to improvements in pull-up jump shooting, his finishing around the basket, his transition play, his intensity on defense. These are all things that they, they, they looked pretty good in his rookie year with enough room for improvement. They looked awesome in this summer league run, and I fully expect him to take a leap in his second year, regardless of whether that's in Philly or for another team. He's definitely going to be a much better player. Some other guy, returning guys that had awesome summer leagues, Desmond Bain for the Memphis Grizzlies. They fed him a lot of point guard responsibilities in Vegas. And by my eye test, he certainly passed. He seemed really comfortable as someone who was handling the ball from, from a floor general's perspective. Didn't put up massive assist numbers. Um, but for the most part, again, I thought he looked really comfortable. And the pull-up shot making, the three-point shooting, all of that was still there. He's going to be a dynamite player off the bench for Memphis in year two. And who knows? He might even get some starting nods, depending on what Memphis wants to do in that backcourt, who they want to mix and match with in between John Morant and Dylan Brooks. Obi Toppin put up good numbers. I didn't love how the New York Knicks used 
Obi Toppin for a lot of the summer league, to be honest. He, in my opinion, he was way too stagnant, like spotting up in the corner, being used exclusively from the corners of the wings as like a jump shooter for a lot of possessions. I loved when he was active in transition, when he was cutting to the basket in the half court. He did a lot of his damage, almost all of his damage off of the ball. Didn't really have the ball in his hands a lot, but that's okay. He's a big man or he's a big wing. He's not going to be a creator from the perimeter. He's somebody who they have to have somebody else getting him the ball to make the best use of his talents. And when he did get the ball in his hands, for the most part, he excelled. Do I want to see him exclusively shooting jump shots? No, especially considering with the diet of shots that he had in Vegas from the perimeter. He was slightly under league average, I believe, on those shots. So he's not this automatic jump shooter that's warranting putting up like seven to eight threes per game. If he's shooting like three or or maybe even like four maximum just to keep defenses honest, to keep the floor spread for some of his other guys, like an RJ Barrett, like a Julius Randle, even what, what we'll see from like a Kemba Walker or another guy that played well coming back for a second year, Emmanuel Quickly. If he's just doing it to spread the floor for those guys to give them more room to operate, that's fine. But I, I've got, I do not want him jacking up like seven to eight three point shots per game. That, that I hope Thibodeau changes. Emmanuel quickly didn't shoot the ball well from an efficiency standpoint, either from the field or from three. But he did shoot really well from the from the free throw line. He was much better making plays for others. He was a legitimate true point guard for that New York Knicks team. Um, even even handling the ball a lot when somebody like a Miles McBride came in. Miles McBride, who also had a good summer league. I thought a lot of the Knicks guys had a pretty good summer league. But even when guys like Miles McBride, Quentin Grimes, even when they came in, quickly was still on the ball, dominating the ball, wanted to be the primary pick and roll playmaker setting others up and and he did it. He did it pretty well. I liked a lot of the passing stuff I saw from IQ. I think that the Knicks definitely wanted to put the ball in his hands because he's going to be a point guard for them. I don't see him playing the off guard. I think if anything, even in some of those smaller backcourt lineups that they could go to like IQ and like Derek Rose, for example, I think they want Rose having more say within the offense as a scorer than necessarily a setup man. I think they want to groom IQ to be a setup man moving forward. And I liked a lot of the stuff that I saw from him. I mentioned Quentin Grimes. Does Quentin Grimes become the best shooter from this draft class? He was torching it from three, regardless of whether they ran him off screens, whether he was spotting up from the corner, um, different catch and shoot type looks, whatever he shot from three point range just seemed to be money. And it's what we saw from him last year at Houston. It's what we saw in the draft combine. A big reason why he was shooting up draft boards from the draft combine. He was a flamethrower. He was on fire. I loved a lot of the stuff I saw from Quentin Grimes. It made me put out a tweet about if you're the Sixers, would you rather have James Springer or Quentin Grimes? I'm not off the Springer bandwagon either. I definitely think that he's the better bet long-term as somebody to develop. But if I'm the 76ers and I'm looking at a guy who can come in and contribute this year, especially when you just signed Joel Embiid to, to that max extension, you want to be putting teams out there that can maximize his talent, maximize where he's at in his career, and you want to be competing for championships. They have other options at the guard wing spots that they'll definitely play this year. But man, Quentin Grimes, I was really impressed with some of the shot making I saw from him out in Las Vegas. I fully expect it to translate in whatever minutes he gets 
for the Knicks next year. If he doesn't play a lot of minutes for the New York Knicks, um, he'll, he'll be getting he'll be getting looks at Westchester. I can promise you that he'll be getting three point shots in spades. He'll be bombing them and he'll be making a lot of them. So I think in, in the years to come, Quentin Grimes could, if not the best three point shooter from this draft class, I think he can certainly be among the top three point shooters from this draft class. I think that pretty much covers it for some of the second year players that impressed me. Some of the other rookies, obviously my, my favorite game that, that I was there for was the, the Nets game where Cam Thomas took quite literally, it seemed like every single shot and he made a lot of them. He ended up finishing that game with 36 points. He was tops in summer league in terms of um, scoring points per game. He had a sudden death game winner for the Nets what didn't that man do scoring the basketball? It's ironic because a lot of his shot percentages look um, pretty close to what they were in college at LSU from a percentage perspective. Not the most efficient volume score, but it's going to be really interesting to see how Brooklyn uses him in his rookie year if they elect to go to him much off the bench at all. They have a lot of veteran players in front of him. I think if they hadn't signed Patty Mills, I would expect to see Cam Thomas a little more off the bench. Now that I think that you have somebody like Patty Mills in the fold, um, well, one of the best FIBA scores that, that you can look for is put up massive numbers for that Australia team when he's played for them. Somebody who's been around the NBA for a long time, a proven shooter, proven marksman from three-point range. I expect him to get a bulk of minutes for that team off the bench and kind of play a role similar to what we know Cam Thomas to be able to do, which is jack up a lot of shots from the perimeter. And obviously when, when you have somebody like Patty Mills, he has plenty of experience playing the point guard position and running second units as well. So you get passing craft with somebody like Patty that you're not going to get at least right now from Cam Thomas. Cam Thomas has a lot of work to do in terms of his playmaking ability, his vision, his willingness to pass the basketball. Summer league is at its best when it has a bunch of, jump shooters and jacks from the perimeter, just taking every single shot they're able to look at. Those types of players generally shine in summer league than, than those who operate much better off the ball. We knew Cam Thomas was probably going to make some noise in Las Vegas. He did. Hats off to him. Brooklyn saw what they needed to see in terms of can some of that shot making translate to the NBA level. Spoiler alert, it can. He didn't look too slow. He gets great elevation on his jump shot. He's going to be able to shoot over the defense. Now the question is, can he change and adapt to a specific role that they want to put him in when he's not being force-fed shots all the time? Can he adapt to that type of role? Can he be a much more efficient scorer on lower volume? That remains to be seen. He'll be one guy that I will remain incredibly interested to see in his rookie year, even going into his sophomore year, depending on who Brooklyn chooses to play in the backcourt. The Hawks guys, Jalen Johnson being drafted number 20, Sharif Cooper being drafted number 48, in my opinion, two massive steals on draft night. The Hawks obviously get an A draft grade from me. Jalen Johnson, I still don't think he knows what he's doing much on the basketball court yet. I still think he's really raw from an understanding of how to play the game on both ends of the floor, yet he put up massive numbers when I pulled the averages, 19 points per game. Uh, nine and a half rebounds per game, two assists, zero, I believe 0 0.8 steals, 1.3 blocks. But he shot 57.4% from the field, 41.7% from three. 
81.8% from free, from free throws. Anyone who thought the jump shot wasn't going to be able to translate, he was still making some of those turnaround baseline shots that we saw him make a few times at Duke. He was stepping into transition jump shots and regularity when he broke all the way to the basket, whether it was in transition or off cuts in the half court. He was quicker than almost anybody out there. He was one of those guys along with Zaire Williams, the younger guys who at times they just looked faster than literally anyone else they were going up against. If Jalen Johnson, and I tweeted this before too while, while I was out there, if Jalen Johnson commits to doing the little things, right? If he doesn't look to always take the sexy jump shot or go for the tremendous dunk, if he just does the simple things and focuses on cutting at the right time, filling the lane in transition at the right time, and just putting the ball in the basket the most efficient way possible, he can rack up like 10 to 12 points per night in short order, in, in a limited role. He doesn't have to do a lot of the other spectacular stuff that he's capable of. I like that he bought into offense from an energy perspective. He certainly bought in on the defensive end as well. He was a very versatile defender at times. Sure, he got lost in, in, in pinches. He's not the most aware off-ball defender yet. I certainly had some complaints about that when I wrote his profile. He has a lot of work to do there, but a lot of the flashes were encouraging. Sharif, I talked about this on my most recent guest spot that I did on the Draft Act podcast with Corey and Albert, how Sharif, he needs to speed up his jump shot. He passed up so many open threes. Guys were able to easily run him off of his spot. Way too easy to run him off spots at times. And we, we joked about it. Do you really want to run Sharif off the three-point line when he hasn't proven he can make those shots uh, with regularity or even at uh, consistent volume? You probably don't, but the fact that defenses were able to make him have to adapt to what they were doing so easily, he's got to speed up those jump shot mechanics. He needs to be able to get some of those shots off and keep the defense honest, but we know what he's capable of when he gets a foot in the paint. He can toss up an alley-oop lob as easy as any other passer that's certainly in this draft class, if not among some of the top lob threats in the NBA. He makes it easy. He hit guys with a pocket pass. He can play out of pick and roll. He can hit the cross court, uh, the cross court passes to his left or to his right. He showed examples of doing all of that in summer league. He was a little crafty, even finishing around the basket at times. The 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 percentages from the free throw line weren't up to his standards. What he did at Auburn in about the half the season that he played at Auburn, but I expect that to improve in in the NBA eventually when he gets a role. I don't know how much time, if at all. He's going to play with the Atlanta Hawks this year. They may just have him play almost exclusively in the G League because it's funny. You draft him to be a backup point guard and learn under Trey, but like, where is he going to get the minutes from? You have Trey Young, obviously, as the star point guard. You have Lou Williams, who resigned. The Hawks really like to play Kevin Herter and, and even Bogdan Bogdanovich in like backup point guard type roles, initiating the offense. So, like, I just don't know where the minutes are going to come from or, or how they're going to be justified, especially when he was drafted at 48, the back end of the second round. Uh, apparently teams just don't think he's ready yet to, to play NBA level basketball. So I just don't know where the opportunity is going to come from, but was a really interesting player to watch out there. I look at my sheet. There's, there's three names left that really stick out to me. And then I'll go through a few quick hitters. Davion Mitchell in that championship game. Holy hell. Didn't shoot the ball well, yet seemed comfortable within the offense. 
He didn't get down on himself for missing some of those shots that he did. He was a willing passer and distributor of the basketball. And defensively, Peyton Pritchard was coming off an immensely impressive summer league, put up ridiculous numbers in a few pro-am games that he flew out to and then ultimately flew back to summer league for the championship game, was seeming to be at, at, at the height of his powers. And yet Davion just shut him down, made him look like garbage, probably made him feel like garbage at times on the court. When you have the nickname off night, you have to live up to that reputation. Apparently, Davion is going to live up to it. He's going to be an absolute menace, menace on the defensive end. Clearly, he's going to be one of the most interesting case studies in, in the free throw to three-point shooting correlation experiment. Again, did not shoot it well from the free throw line in Vegas, but still shot it well off the bounce, converted enough of his three-point shots. He's a player, man. He's a player. He's a leader. He's a winner. High-level contributor. If Sacramento ends up making a move, if they get involved in the Ben Simmons sweepstakes, if they trade away De'Aaron Fox and or Buddy Heald, and they need Davion Mitchell to step in and play a big role next to Tyrese Halliburton, I think Davion's ready. I really do. You're, you're probably not going to love some of the, the shot-making and some of the percentages, his efficiency, shooting the ball from the field. But... Him being the kind of point guard that he is, him being able to play off of Tyrese Halliburton, Halliburton will be able to set him up for easier looks if Davion's playing without the basketball, similar to what Jared Butler did at times for, for Davion at Baylor when, when Davion gave the ball up to Jared. Davion was able to cut to the basket or relocate to one of the corners, get a much easier jump shot. Halliburton's going to be able to do a lot of the same things for Davion. It's really funny when I was evaluating how Davion can fit in the NBA as a starting guard. What does he need next to him? He needs to play with a bigger guard who can take some of those playmaking responsibilities from him at times. Let there be a balance between the two, just like Davion had at Baylor with Butler. And I thought that he would have been a great fit next to somebody like a Malcolm Brogdon, or even when Brogdon wasn't playing like him next to a Karis LeVert, I thought Indiana would have been an awesome situation for Davion. Didn't even cross my mind that we'd be involved in some of the trade discussions and rumors with De'Aaron Fox potentially out the door in Sacramento, and you'd stick him next to like a Tyrese Halliburton. That thought didn't even cross my mind. But now when you see what Davion was able to do in summer league, how much he loves playing with some of those other guys, how every single morning he was up early and working out across town with Halliburton, those two are obviously developing chemistry already. You see why the Kings wanted to take a, take a risk on drafting an older player and, and bring him in. And Davion's really starting to win me over. I loved everything that I saw from him in, in summer league and all the games I saw him play. Speaking of Indiana, Chris Duarte, man, Indiana wanted to give him the keys to that offense. They wanted to see him excel in every situation possible. What did he look like with the ball in his hands? Could he set others up? Could he make plays for others? What could he do off the bounce? Will the shot making translate at the NBA level or is he a step too slow? Can he get his shot up over the defense? What does that look like from three-point range? He answered all of those questions. All of those questions. It seemed like every single game that Duarte played in for the Pacers, he was arguably the best player on the floor. And I get that that's supposed to be the case because the dude's 24 years old. He was the oldest player in the draft. He should excel in a situation like Summer League where some of these other younger guys are disjointed coming in, this is the first taste of professional basketball. They don't get a lot of practice time with their teammates and with their coaching staff. 
They don't quite know how to handle what's being thrown at them yet. So you would expect Duarte, somebody who's um, has enough college experience under his belt, has enough basketball experience in general under his belt. You would expect him to be a lot more comfortable transitioning in, but I did not expect that level of comfort from Chris Duarte shooting the ball, shooting the piss out of the ball from no matter where he was shooting it from. I loved, 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 loved what I saw from Duarte on the defensive end. And that was something I had questions about. He was only in the 10th percentile last year in the country in terms of total defense. Duarte was active on the ball, off the ball, competitive, communicating with his teammates, cheering other guys on. I just loved what he brought to the table. Indiana, man, I wanted to question if Duarte went too high. I don't necessarily question it anymore. We'll see how some of these other guys pan out that were drafted behind him. But you can't say that there's going to be too many players better than Duarte who are drafted behind him. Like, and, and even if some of those other guys, maybe maybe like a Jalen Johnson absolutely blossoms, right? Maybe another guy who I'm going to talk about in a second, um, Trey Murphy, maybe he continues to blossom. Um, Shengun, maybe Shengun turns into the potential star that I think he has a chance to be. That doesn't mean that Chris Duarte was, was going to end up being a bad pick where he was at 13. The, the Pacers drafted a really solid, really good basketball player. And it's just another team. They're, they're operating kind of like the Memphis Grizzlies. Indiana just wants players. You got, you got Malcolm Brogdon, you got Karis LeVert, Demonis Sabonis, Miles Turner, TJ Warren. Now you have Duarte. Like they're just stacking talent all over the floor and they're going to have a deep team that I think should really make some noise in the Eastern conference next year. I I'm, I'm excited to actually see what that Pacers team looks like under a coach like Rick Carlisle, how that team can sing offensively. I mentioned Trey Murphy's name just now, the last guy who I really want to talk about uh, more in depth, and then I'll give some quick hitters. Trey Murphy, I think out of all the young guys, Jalen Green was the best rookie, in my opinion, on the floor, but the most impressive, the guy who stood out and gave me the most of what I didn't expect in summer league what was Trey Murphy. Shout, shout out, hats off to Chuck at Chucking Darts. Right, right now, he looks to be he looks to be right. He looks to be pretty smart in this conversation. Him and I had some really positive things to say on one of his final podcasts before the draft about Trey Murphy, how I came around to, to Trey potentially being a lottery-level talent because of everything that he showed in Vegas. That Pelicans team next to Zion and Brandon Ingram just needs smart basketball players who can be stars in their role. They're not going to do a bunch of dumb stuff. They're not going to cough up the ball, jack up on warranted jumpers. They just need guys who can be stars in their role and who do the right things on the floor. And Trey Murphy hammers that home. I mean, hammers that home. His jump shot, his beautiful shot, the arc that he gets on that ball, he can make shots from virtually anywhere on the floor. He may not be this pull-up, isolation, scoring maestro. He may never be that guy. I'm not in love with his handle. I'm not in love with, with all of his self-creation stuff. And I think Chuck also echoed some of those points. Even as high as he is on Trey Murphy, he's even echoed some of that. Maybe that stuff never comes around for him. But spot-up shooting, catch-and-shoot, cutting, moving without the basketball, he does it all, and he does it so efficiently. 
He scored over 20 points multiple times out in Vegas. And he looked like, again, as much as I don't want to paint him as this potential isolation type wing scorer, he was a guy that New Orleans went to down the stretches in different games. And he delivered. He absolutely delivered defensively. He, he guarded anyone he was going up against pretty well. Jonathan Kuminga tried to body him up a few times when the Pelicans played the Warriors. Trey Murphy said no to that. Trey Murphy's understanding of how to play defense from a positional standpoint, and similar to some of the compliments I was giving Shengun, Trey Murphy clearly knows the concept of KYP, know your personnel. Because when he was guarding Kuminga, that, that's probably the most standout defensive matchup that I can point to for, for Trey Murphy out in Vegas. When he was guarding Kuminga, he funneled him the spots on the court where Kuminga kind of ran out of real estate to, to dribble and, and be able to, to run headfirst into the basket. He forced him to run out of real estate, turn his back to the basket where Trey Murphy was more than comfortable bodying somebody like him up. And I wouldn't even say that Trey Murphy looks like he should be strong enough to, to body up somebody like Kaminga, who as young as he is, he has a man, his man's body. Um, he shouldn't be able to body him up as well as he did, but Trey just knew how to funnel him into areas where that wasn't part of Kaminga's game. He's not an effective post scorer. If he can't get, a straight line drive to the basket, especially with where his jump shot's at right now. He's just not that effective of an offensive player. And when you throw a guy like that against Trey Murphy, Trey's probably sitting there like, I know everything that this kid's capable of. I know everything is going to throw at me. This is going to be a fairly easy matchup for me just because I'm just flat out smarter than the guy I'm going up against. That's really what it felt like out there. So yeah, Trey Murphy, he's going to be a really good player for the Pelicans. Will he be a star? Probably not. Like, I would never have him as high as Chuck had him. I believe at like number five. I think he had him, for example. I would never have him that high. But in terms of him being a, just a really good basketball player and a starter caliber player, absolutely. And I think he's going to start for New Orleans, honestly, sooner rather than later. When, when, you, can, when you can throw out a lineup with um, Ingram, Trey Murphy and Zion at your two through four. You already have a big man in Jonas Valanciunas, and then you have a backup big in Jackson Hayes. Really, at that point, all you need to do is figure out the point guard spot. And we'll see how Devontae Graham fares for that team. We'll see if Kyra Lewis can, can make any leaps in, in getting more playing time. We'll see how a lot of that plays out. But, yeah, when you can trot out a, a two through four like that, versatility offensively and defensively, you're in a pretty good spot. I, I bet you David Griffin's feeling pretty good about where his team's at now that he's seen a lot of the stuff that Trey Murphy can do on, on an NBA basketball court. So that's pretty much a lot of the guys that I wanted to, to expound upon more in depth. I'll run through my list of some guys. I'll just do some quick hits and then we'll, we'll get out of here on this episode of the pod. Pat Williams wasn't great from an efficiency standpoint, but took the brunt of offensive responsibility for the Chicago Bulls. Absolutely delivered. He he did look good defensively, as he generally always does. Offensively, he showed more of the mid-range shot making. Him and Ayo Desunmu really put pressure on the basket uh, against other teams, and they led that team. I, I was really happy with what I saw from the both of them. Um, I talked about Kaminga a little bit going up against Trey Murphy, but Kaminga had plenty of highlights himself as well. Some highlight dunks of athleticism really shine through in the summer league setting. I'm expecting more big things 
from from Kaminga a few years down the road. Probably going to be a majority G League player, but um, yeah, his athleticism, his physicality, it all stood out. I already talked about Malachi Flint a little bit. He had an excellent summer league, showed off some some deep shot making, some proficiency at distributing the basketball, handling things from the point guard spot. He's gonna he's gonna be just fine in Toronto. Jamias Ramsey, Jamias Ramsey better get some kind of some kind of role for the Sacramento Kings next year. He was magnificent at times for that team. I understand again. Not every single number is there from an efficiency standpoint. Only shot about 33% from three-point range, but he finished pretty well from the field, shot it great from the free-throw line, played solid defense. He has clearly gained a lot more confidence since his rookie year. I expect him to, or at least I hope he has some kind of role. Josh Primo had his ups, had his downs, as we expected. I. Didn't like a lot of what I saw from him defensively, despite that actually being a strength of his while he was at Alabama. I didn't like a lot of what I saw from him on that end of the floor. Offensively, the playmaking still isn't there. The handle still isn't there. The the shot making and the jump shooting is. But yeah, the handling, playmaking, finishing around the basket. Primo Primo needs a lot of work, but he at least had some, some standout moments on the ball, making tough shots. I was proud to see some of those looks go in for him. Brandon Boston Jr. loves seeing his swag out there. His confidence was was starting to come back on that floor. He was talking trash, making jump shots from all over, whether it was behind the arc, whether it was some pull-up shots in the mid-range, finishing around the basket. He looks better physically. The Clippers, they're, they're getting a player in, in Brandon Boston. If, it, if, if you had to make me choose between Brandon Boston and Zaire Williams, I think I'd actually take Boston. And... The Clippers picked him like 40-some-odd picks after Zaire Williams was picked. So hats off to Brandon Boston. I think in a few years he might actually turn out to be not not the same type of prospect that we saw coming in preseason, like a top-five guy, but I think closer to that guy than the other end of the spectrum. Isaiah Todd, I saw some really impressive shot-making from, from Isaiah Todd at, at different points. Some of that turnaround shot making, him being able to stretch the floor from three-point range, his feel for the game still leaves some to be desired, but he was active rebounding the basketball, was active on the ball defensively, did block some shots. I still think the, the Wizards got, ended up getting one hell of a player in Isaiah Todd, and I think that he will do big things. In, in a few years time that that's one guy I think I'm pretty much outside of consensus on him in terms of me thinking he's going to be much better than where he was drafted yeah I'm, I'm going to bet on Isaiah Todd and then I'll shout out two senior point guards that that I was high on during the pre-draft process I hammered them home during the tears podcast but Ja'Cory McLaughlin one of the best assist to turnover ratios out at Vegas at summer league looked very comfortable making shots from three-point range pulling up at the basket getting others involved, handling the ball in transition, being a reliable point guard and half-court offense for the Golden State Warriors team out there. I liked what I saw from him, as steady as it came, especially towards the latter end of games. And then Matt Coleman, the speedster that he was in Vegas. Few people could keep Coleman in front of him when he got ahead of steam. And then even though the handle does need a little bit of work, when he was able to pull off some of those dribble moves, I mean, his step back. He gets to that step back move so quick and, and good luck trying to block it. 
or, or stop it. He creates so much space on his step back move. Obviously a blur when he's in the open court where he's able to get to the basket. A lot of his isolation numbers on synergy last year were, were pretty impressive for a guard his size as well as his finishing around the basket. A lot of that stuff was on display. That guy, he he he's an NBA point guard, man. I don't think he's a starter. I think defensively, you could probably pick on him a little too much for him to be a starter, but certainly off of somebody's bench, he, he deserves to have a home in the NBA. Him and McLaughlin. They absolutely do. They're NBA-level point guards. And that's going to wrap up this podcast. I'm glad that I was able to go out there so that I could share some of these thoughts with my audience. Again, subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already, wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Follow us on Twitter, at DraftDeeper. We're over 1,200 followers now on Twitter. Thank you so much to everyone who's chosen to follow us. I'm always talking to people. I love that I'm getting a few more replies nowadays on my tweets, probably because I have more followers. I love interacting with you guys, love talking with you. The only way we can get better at evaluating the games is if we're communicating our thoughts to each other and, and, and things that we're seeing so that we can help somebody else maybe see something that they couldn't. That's how we all get better. We do it for, for the love of the game. We do it to have fun. That's why I have this platform. That's why I'm talking to you guys today. Love that everyone's engaged with it. Love that our, our listenership is where it is. Big things are coming right around the corner for 2022, but we got to wrap up 2021 first. Expect a more steady stream of podcasts now. I'm, I'm back from my little hiatus. Expect a steady stream of grades podcasts and a series that I talked about on social media today. Again, I'm recording this on August 19th, Thursday, August 19th. I talked about going back some older draft classes like 2017 through 2020. And for each of those years, maybe doing um, a, a tier setup with how I kind of did this draft class and the different tiers that I did, tiers one through seven, maybe going back and doing that with the 60 draft picks from each of those older draft classes, not necessarily incorporating all the undrafted guys, because I don't want to make those podcasts uh, too, too long, given we know, we probably know where the meat and potatoes of each podcast is. If there's a significant undrafted guy in one of those years, like I won't, I won't ignore him, for example, but we know where the meat and potatoes of those podcasts are going to lie, but I think that's a fun experiment. I would love to do that for you guys. And I think that's something that I definitely plan on doing before we get a lot of the 2022 stuff rolling. I'll be starting prep for 2022 in September. I don't know how many podcasts about 2022 are, are going to release in September from me, definitely by October, uh, by the beginning of October. But I think I'm going to have some fun with this offseason stuff. I cannot wait to keep interacting with you guys, get into some of that prep. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Again, thanks for listening to this podcast. Thanks for sharing it and leave a review.